Today was such a beautiful day. I was so appreciating um, spring. It's like a miracle, isn't it, when spring returns? It's just like, how does it happen? Suddenly all the little buds start to come open and the blossoms and... I went for a hike this afternoon and I was sitting up on the hill enjoying the green, all the luscious green grass and green, so many different shades of green, the warm air, that sense of sort of a luscious earth. I was just sitting there, it was just that feeling that I know all of you, we all have at times of just how delicious and delightful and easy and perfect it all is. You know those moments, those lovely moments in life when nothing needs to change. I think that's the secret of those moments where there's not a sense that anything needs to be different than it is. Of course, those moments are usually very pleasurable. You know, we don't often have that sense when things aren't so pleasant, when, you know, there's some sort of pain or difficulty. Then we can see all kinds of reasons for things to be different. I had a teacher once, a Chinese Zen master, who didn't speak much English, but his frequent teaching was everything's okay. Everything's okay. After giving some long discourse with all the, you know, Buddhist ideas and subtleties of insight, and then he would just grin and he would say, everything's okay. And you would really believe it, you know, when he said it. And it's sort of the ground where we begin in Buddhist practice is this sense that basically everything is okay. That means we are okay. Everybody else is okay. There's a fundamental quality of sanity and okayness that we all have within us, we could say that we are all part of. The Buddha within, the Buddha nature, that is the ground of our being. The problem is what? Well, another quote from a teacher, Suzuki Roshi, he said, everything's perfect and there's a lot of room for improvement. (laughs) And somehow we live in both worlds. We live in this world where, yes, we get a sense at times that everything's okay, everything is perfect. And we live at other times, perhaps more frequently, in the world that says there's a lot of room for improvement. And certainly, if we look around the world right now, anytime probably, but right now is a, is, this is the time we're in. So 
looking at what is happening in this world at this time. I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of great vulnerability with what is occurring in the world right now, a sense of great possibility. I kind of go back and forth between the sense of the opportunity that we are all facing on this planet, ecologically, politically, and also the sense of great fragility and vulnerability that we might, might blow it. I've been reading a beautiful book uh, by Peter Matheson. Uh, It's called The Birds of Heaven. It's his latest book, and um, I highly recommend it. It's a book about cranes. The uh, situation of cranes, flying cranes, on the planet right now. Many of them, there are many, there's number of species, maybe a dozen or so species of flying cranes, and some of them are endangered. And there is that sense in reading the story of the cranes, of this, just what I'm saying to you, this sense of in very, a very incredible vulnerability. It, it doesn't look like many of them will survive and let, without our help. They've been here only six million years. They've been on the planet doing their thing, living their lives. Six million years. But now, because of our impact, they may not make it without our active intervention. Now, So that's the the vulnerability. The opportunity is in this. Many of the places that the cranes go to, uh, the wetlands, the places they fly to every year, are places that border a number of different countries, like there's a, a lake in way out there where Russia, China, Korea, Japan all have some sort of interest in this area. So in order to save the cranes habitat, people who ordinarily consider each other as the enemy need to talk. They need to get together. They need to learn to cooperate if they're going to save the crane. Isn't that amazing? It's like the cranes are providing this sort of uh, opportunity for dialogue and for uh, mutual cooperation that has never existed before. 
So what I wanted to talk about tonight, and I didn't mean to actually get into the cranes, but there they were, um, is this, this quality of seeing clearly from the Buddhist perspective what we're up against, what we're up against in ourselves, what we're up against in, in the world. The Buddha talked a lot about what creates the sense of separation that we all so often feel in our lives, the sense of being a separate self that needs to defend itself, protect itself, assert itself, um, in the face of this this world that seems at times very frightening, very big, very overwhelming. And this sense of separation, how it gets in our way, how it actually doesn't serve us. The Buddha said often and repeatedly that he taught one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. He contrasted that to the goals of worldly life. What are the goals of worldly life? Usually some sort of pursuit of achievement or wealth or pleasure or um, competing or achieving in a certain way. And he made it very clear that when we enter a practice, a Buddhist practice, we, the, the very aim of our existence begins to shift. We begin to see the goal of our lives not so much as grabbing hold of whatever we can in this world to make ourselves feel better, but as a deep understanding of what it is, how we suffer, what it is that uh, increases our suffering or causes our discontent, and how we can alleviate that or heal that or free ourselves from that kind of... um, suffering, because it was the Buddha's observation that there are ways that we think and feel which actually lead us further into suffering rather than freeing ourselves from suffering. So, to learn a Buddhist practice is really to open ourselves in some fundamental sense to a way of being which is meant to help us be happier as human beings, to help us not needlessly suffer, and to actually feel less separate and alone and alienated and somehow deficient in the face of this enormous world 
that we're to negotiate and make sense of. There's a lovely saying um, that I heard many years ago and I've always remembered and I don't know who said it, probably some very wise Taoist poet or Buddhist teacher. It's the saying that says, in the cherry blossom shade there is no such thing as a stranger. In the cherry blossom's shade, there is no such thing as a stranger. There is that sense as we open our hearts, as we open our understanding of what this life is about, that we our task in some way is to let go of the notion of stranger let go of the notion of living in a world of strangers and to and to begin to see rather that we live in a world of friendship and goodwill that we can cultivate qualities in ourselves that deconstruct if you will the notion of stranger that begin to connect us to the other. The idea of um, overcoming separation may seem really kind of big and kind of daunting or a little bit abstract. But if we think about it, in in our very own lives, All of us in our lives have people or thoughts about people that we consider the other. People who feel really, really different from us. Really, really unfamiliar to us. And so we kind of, what do we do with that? We sort of put them out here somewhere. We just don't really want to know them because they seem so unfamiliar, so strange, so not who we are, so unlike us. There was a cartoon in the New Yorker magazine this last week, actually, that I thought I would share with you. Um... It's a picture of four people in a hot tub. Looks like Palm Desert or Palm Springs. There's a palm tree and there's mountains. There's two men and two women sitting in a hot tub with martinis. One man is smoking a cigar. One woman smoking a cigarette. And they've clearly been in there for some time having a discussion, evidently, about world politics. And the caption reads, when the woman is speaking, and the caption reads, I think that if these Islamic fundamentalists got to know us, 
they'd like us. <laughs> I like the use of the word these. I, I think that these Islamic fundamentalists, we all know what they're, what they're, what she's referring to, don't we? These Islamic fundamentalists, they've become such a part of our consciousness. And clearly this is a conversation that we're in the middle of here. And the idea that if they only knew us, what good people we are, what a great way of life we've got going here, where we can sit in hot tubs and drink martinis and smoke. And wow, I mean, what could be better, you know? If only they got to know us, they'd like us. We're good people. And it's very odd for many people, many people actually, to, to consider that to Islamic fundamentalists, to many people in the Muslim world, perhaps, to may, may, maybe people in North Korea, I don't know. But to many people, we are the other in their lives. They see us as this somewhat to be feared, strange, unfamiliar, other. Isn't it odd to, to see yourself being seen like that? Have you had that experience in your own life where you've been seen as the other? It's, it's an odd, it's a, it's a disconcerting feeling. So to know both sides of it, that we create that in the way that we look at some people and others view us in that way as well. For a moment, close your eyes and we'll do a little exercise just to help us go a little deeper with this the sense of the other. There's no right or wrong answer to this question, but just see what comes. In your own life, who do you feel or sense is an other? Could be someone you know who, who feels really different from you, or it be, could be someone you don't know at all, but have only heard about or seen on the news or had some con minimal contact with. Just notice what comes. No judgment of yourself, no need to judge, just an honest acknowledgement. Yes, I feel this person or these kinds of people seem really unfamiliar to me. They feel really different. And in that difference, how do you feel? What kinds of emotions arise? Okay, open your eyes. And that's just a snapshot, a brief moment of, of seeing in ourselves how we perhaps shut down, perhaps create an image, 
we don't know if it's true or not, but we imagine it's true, how we might feel some fear, how we might feel some contraction in our body. Did any of you feel any of that? Yeah. Just to notice that, that we all have people that we feel this sense of sort of alien from. So in the, the attitude that's behind so many of, of the Buddhist practices, there's this attitude of not letting that remain, not letting, not, not fixating on this quality of otherness, but seeing what is in the way of connecting. So a lot of Buddhist practices point us in the direction of not seeing the differences between people, but in seeing what we have in common, finding what commonality that we have as human beings. Shantideva wrote, In joy and sorrow all are equal. Meditate upon the sameness of yourself and others. In this way, be a guardian of all as of yourself. In joy and sorrow, all are equal. So he's saying, can we begin to have this view of others, even those that seem most alien, even if we don't know them intimately, we can be sure by virtue of the fact that they are human beings who are born into bodies, have all the vicissitudes and vulnerabilities of what it means to be a human being. They have joys, they have sorrows. We may not know their story, we may not know the details of their lives, but we can be sure that just as we have had difficulties and disappointments and fears and torments of mind and conflicts and losses that everyone has shared in this experience. It's just the human situation that we're all in that we are all equal in sharing a certain amount of joys, a certain amount of sorrows. So that we can begin to see others in a way as sharing something with us rather than as not as being really different from us. When we, when we think of people who seem really different from us or people that we know, what often gets triggered in us is the comparing mind, this mind of comparison. Another way that we create separation between ourselves and others, instead of seeing the sameness instead of seeing that we're all 
equally vulnerable as humans, we can compare ourselves with others and, and see ourselves as less than. Oh, that person is so much better at this than I am. Or that person, gee, I guess I'm, I'm doing better than they are, at least today. We, we get into all kinds of comparisons, don't we? I, I was watching the Olympics a little bit the last couple of weeks, as I imagine many of you were. Talk about comparing mine. <laughs> it's like, that's what it's all about, you know, is the hundredth of a second comparisons. <laughs> you know, who is the better, faster skater, bobsledder, skier? You know, imagine feeling like you failed because you came in two-tenths of a second behind the other person and you blew your chances of a, of a gold medal forever. You know, you're forever condemned to only a silver medal because of two-tenths of a second and the comparison that goes on between the athletes and, and in our minds, too, as viewers. Somebody does this amazing, you know, that ski thing where they go up in the air and they twirl and they spin and they, I mean, they just do the most amazing things. The very worst of them would be like awesome, you know, I mean, just the thought of what they're doing up there. But Instead, we get very picky, you know, oh, well, that person, the, the ski went apart a little bit, you know, oh, forget them, they're out of the race. You know? <laughs> and you could see in the athletes themselves, you know, how much their whole sense of purpose and identity was invested at times, you know, in, for some of them, in getting the gold. They've been training for four years to get the gold. <laughs> there was a young man named Todd Eldridge. Did any of you see him? A skater who has won every other kind of um, medal you could possibly win all over the world. But he has been training for four years to win the gold. And he was so nervous. You could see it, you know, in his skating. He just blew it. He blew it and he didn't make it and it was just heartbreaking to think this he put himself into such a competitive box that now his whole sense of identity is I failed you know and maybe maybe Michelle Kwan too another skater who also had that deep deep investment in getting the gold so this comparing mind, the Olympics is probably the most, you know, extreme example. But all the ways that we compare ourselves to others or compare ourselves to other versions of ourselves, you know, like I did it better yesterday than I'm doing it today. So we judge ourselves, or we, we're always kind of trying to figure out where we are in the, how am I doing? That's the question, you know, how am I doing? Not doing so well today. 
oh, I'm really on top of things today. You know, just to notice that movement of mind and how invested we get in, in being okay with ourselves. Being okay with ourselves through this comparison. It's an endless loop. You know, really, if you, if you really reflect on it, if you really begin to notice it in your lives, the sad news, if you haven't figured it out already, <laughs> you'll never win. You'll never make it. You just won't. <laughs> I'd like to tell you that you will, but you won't. That's just the way it is. Eventually, we're going to lose everything. Our competitive edge will be the first to go. And then there's a lot more after that. So, so to see, again, our practice is not to um, get rid of things, but to begin to notice in our own lives how this comparing mind really sets up a uh, separation between ourselves and others. It prevents us from being happy for others, from being uh, even compassionate with others. You know, you can't really be compassionate if you're feeling like, well, I'm certainly glad that's not me. <laughs> if there's that comparison always going on. Um, one of the practices in Buddhism is actually to develop a sense of equality with all beings, just as I was saying before about seeing the sameness in everyone rather than comparing or seeing who's better or who's worse. Really getting a sense of equality with all. Sharon Salzberg, in her book Loving Kindness, which has sort of become a root text in this, in this tradition. It's a wonderful book if you haven't read it. Talks about a period of practice in Burma where she was studying with her teacher, Upandita, Sayadaw Upandita, and she was doing an intensive period of loving-kindness practice many weeks, actually. And um, when we do this kind of intensive practice using loving-kindness as the focus, we, go th- we, we begin by sending loving-kindness to the people that we know who are easy for us, like the person who's called the benefactor, the person that we know loves us and supports us. We begin sending it then to ourselves. We send loving-kindness to ourselves. We send loving-kindness then to a friend. Then we, the next category that we work with is what is called the neutral person. It's a person perhaps that we don't have strong feelings about one way or the other. We just notice them walking down our street you know, and we don't know them, we don't have strong feelings about them, they're sort of neutral. We begin to develop loving-kindness towards that person. And then we get to what is called the enemy. 
the most challenging person of all to send loving kindness to is sometimes less dramatically called the difficult person. The person in your life who you have the most difficulty with or who you actually feel is an enemy. Whatever, whatever seems suitable for you. So Sharon had been practicing with all the different categories of people. And towards the end of this time, she went into her teacher. And he uh, asked her something. He said, suppose you were walking in the forest with your benefactor, your friend, your neutral person, and your enemy. Bandits come and demand that you choose one person in your group to be sacrificed. Which one would you choose to die? Imagine being faced with that. Which one would you choose to die? She said, I was shocked at Upandita's question. I sat there and looked deep into my heart, trying to find a basis from which I could choose. I saw, this was after, you know, several months of doing loving-kindness practice. So she was, her heart was very, very open. She said, I saw that I could not feel any distinction between any of those people, including myself. Finally, I looked at Upandita and replied, I couldn't choose. Everyone seems the same to me. What a remarkable view, isn't it? Upandita then asked, you wouldn't choose your enemy? I thought a minute and then answered, no, I couldn't. Finally, Upandita asked me, don't you think you should be able to sacrifice yourself to save the others. He was being very sly, testing her. He asked the question as if more than anything else in the world, he wanted me to say, yes, I would sacrifice myself. Sort of like the good spiritual answer, you know. So she said, a lot of conditioning rose up in me, an urge to please him, to be right, to win approval, but there was no way I could honestly say yes. So I said, no, I really can't see any difference between myself and any of the others. This was the right answer. It's amazing just to contemplate that there's a state of mind and and Sharon, you know, it's sort of my feeling is if, if she can do it, we can all do it. A state of mind where we really see others as equal to, as, as, as equal. Can't even say to ourselves. We sort of lose that reference point as well. That somehow we're all equal. We're all equally deserving to live, to be happy not suffer. There's no scale that says one is better than another or more deserving than another. That's quite a 
That's quite a state of mind, isn't it? To arrive there. So to even get a, a, a sort of hit of it, as we say, you know, sort of a, a, a glimpse of that possibility shows us a direction that all these Buddhist practices are, are meant to help us move in so that we're not living in a world of enemy and other and alien and stranger, but rather living in a world of those who are like me, those who also suffer, those who also feel all the feelings I have ever felt in my life. So close your eyes again. Now I'd like you to revisit the other. And see if anything has changed by contemplating your what you share with them in terms of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of this life. In terms of contemplating yourself as equals. Has anything changed? Can you begin to sense perhaps a connection that wasn't there before? This is not to say that you need to invite this person to dinner, but simply that you recognize your shared humanity. You can open your eyes. How many of you notice some even infinitesimal difference? Yeah, it's a direction, isn't it? It's a, li- it's a little crack in something very solid, something that seems very real. So there are many practices in Buddhism which begin with these little breaking apart of our perceptions, changing our perception, even a little minuscule amount. The practice of loving-kindness is certainly one that moves in that direction. Sending loving-kindness to yourself and to others in all these categories. I've been very delighted in my life to see how Buddhist practice has uh, led me into contact with situations and peoples that I, I don't think my upbringing, my limited world of uh, white middle-class uh, suburban upbringing would have led me to. I'll give you a little snapshot. I was, uh, I've traveled quite a bit in, in Asia, quite a bit in India, and um, one year, well, it must have been 10 years ago, visiting Bodh Gaya, 
Now, this was probably my third trip to India, and even though I'm better when I go to India, I'm still... It, India pushes all my buttons. How many of you have been to India? Do you know what I mean? You know, it's just like you get off the plane and immediately your buttons start getting pushed. <laughs> what? Especially in Bombay. Well, everybody has their place. I would say Calcutta, but... In any case, um, one of my buttons is that I like my privacy. I, I like the idea that I can walk down the street without people bothering me. I like the idea that as a woman I could go into a restaurant and eat a quiet meal and nobody would, you know, be coming up and trying to talk to me. Just simple things like that, you know. This idea, uh, I'm an American, even though I'm a woman, I, I can be like, I can have my boundaries. <laughs> sounds so funny. So one day in Bodh Gaya, I um, decided that I would just wander down to the Thai temple. Or I was just wandering there, and the Thai temple looked kind of peaceful. And I thought, well, I'll just sit on the steps of the Thai temple. So I did. I sat down on the steps and was meditating and just sitting there and not too long I noticed a few children started to come up and they you know were playing and giggling and wanted my attention and then some beggars came and they of course wanted my money and then <laughs> other people just kept coming and coming until I swear I was sitting on the steps of the Thai temple with about 20 people <laughs> who were not going anywhere. I mean, I wasn't really interacting with them. I was trying to pretend I was alone. You know? But they just kind of gathered around. And by this time, I'd been in India enough to know that it was sort of futile and frustrating and irritating just to try to fend everybody off and insist on my way. So I just thought, okay, here we all are. You know, just hanging out at the Thai temple with a, quite an assortment of characters, you know. And then I suddenly thought, gee, I wish somebody was here to take a picture because my family just would never get it. You know, what are you doing sitting <laughs> on the steps of a temple in Bodh Gaya with these, these amazing people around who I just would never have had the opportunity to meet if I'd stayed in Bronxville, New York, where I grew up. So I kind of love that this practice forces us out of our shells and opens us in ways to the world that are quite beautiful and quite amazing and quite, uh, I feel, quite what the world needs right now. It seems to me that our whole nation and culture and Western world really is doing a, a crash course on otherness and creating images of, you know, those that we 
feel are the other, the, the feared other, and that we need to learn how to be with that without buying into this sense of enemy. Do you know what I'm saying? We, we can't afford enemy anymore on this planet. Just as the cranes need our help. Do you have any thoughts or questions before we end? Fine. I hope this has been useful to you. I hope you have enjoyed your time here tonight. I've very much enjoyed being here with you, and I um, wish you well in your practice and in being here at Spirit Rock and feeling like you are with family, not with other, but with family. So thank you and good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.